The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The fact that the that Congress is navigating extremely tight margins here, I think not only shapes what reforms they're willing to go out on a limb for, but it, it means that, you know, the room for error elsewhere is constrained as well. If you really need to get everybody in line to pass, you know, President Biden's uh, social policy bill or the um, infrastructure bill or the NDAA, you just don't have the kind of money to burn, essentially, that you might need to get through some reforms that might be unpopular. And so I think that, you know, we're we're really operating in a world that is maybe the hardest dynamic for the Biden administration to, to push something through, if it even wanted to push something through. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 11th, 2022. The period after Watergate and President Nixon's resignation saw an unprecedented barrage of congressional efforts at reforming the executive branch. The period after Donald Trump's departure from office has seen no comparable spree of legislative action, at least not yet. In a recent Lawfare article, Quinta Jurassic and Andrew Kent explored the disparity, the reasons for it, and they analyzed whether any of the legislative reforms that have been so far proposed have any prospect of passage. They joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about why things are so different today than they were in the late 1970s, what happened in that period, and whether Congress will actually be able to do anything now. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 11th, the legislative dog that hasn't barked. So I want to start with what I think is an embedded assumption of this article you guys have written, which is this, the assumption that this would be a period of substantial legislative reform uh, related to the presidency. That assumption may seem obvious, but in light of the gravamen of the piece, maybe it's not obvious. So, Andrew, get us started. Why are we assuming that a new administration and a new Congress would come in and want to pass a lot of legislation about reforming the presidency? Thanks, Ben. Yeah, it's a good question because, in general, you know, sitting presidents, are, you know, often are not particularly interested in reforming the presidency. But I think there's probably a couple reasons why it, you correctly say that you know that the piece Quinta and I wrote does assume that this might well have been different. You know, one of them I think is the magnitude of the abuses of office under Trump, and they're really 
you know, I don't want to say unanimity, but it's got to be near unanimity among Democratic Party leaders, um, the kinds of folks who, you know, are sit in the elected offices and staff those offices, uh, you know, on the Hill and the White House, that there were a substantial number of abuses that we sort of know what they are and that there you know, are things that plausibly could be done through legislation to fix those. I think another reason is is historical. You know, as our piece draws the connection to the 1970s, the period that you know it's kind of easy to say kind of post Watergate, but it wasn't just Watergate uh, abuses that were being reformed, but you know things related to war powers because of uh, Vietnam, and things related to the Hoover tenure at FBI. But in any event, the the sort of mid 70s period uh, was a time of very substantial activity both in Congress and in the executive branch for forming the presidency. And I think there are a lot of reasons to think that this current time might well you know, parallel that. All right. So Quinta, give us an overview of the legislative agenda that you guys would have thought that, you know, but for whatever reasons you would have thought the new administration and the new Congress would have come in with with ex- with respect to executive authority. Absolutely. So before I do that, I think it's also worth mentioning, building on what Andrew said, that Biden himself had indicated that he would be open and even potentially enthusiastic about reform of the presidency post-Trump. He talked about it in sort of general terms, but we also wrote a piece together during the 2020 presidential primary looking at how various candidates on the Democratic slate did or didn't incorporate talk of post-Trump presidential reform into their agendas, and Biden was actually one of the people who talked about that the most. So there was reason to think that, you know, that this was a president who would potentially be really open and enthusiastic about the slate of reforms. So in terms of what reforms, that's a really big question, (laughs) just because so much went wrong, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, under the Trump administration. I definitely direct listeners to the excellent book After Trump by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, published by Lawfare, um, and the, the podcast of the same title that Lawfare also put out that sort of goes through Bob and Jack's assessment of all the different things all the different legislative proposals, the different uh, policy changes that could be made within the executive that they think should be changed post-Trump to sort of protect the Constitution, protect democracy from an abusive president like Trump. And the fact that we were able to put together a book and a podcast series, I think, uh, indicates just how much there is on the table. So the, the flagship piece of legislation here that was put forward by House Democrats initially in the fall of 2020 uh, incorporated a lot of these proposals, though not all of them, and also differs. It's it certainly it's not the same as Bob and Jack's agenda differs in a lot of ways, but I think it's it's also representative of the sort of broad scope here. Um, so it's called the Protecting Our Democracy Act. I think we we refer to we're going to refer to it as POTA just because it's a bit of a mouthful. It sort of tackles everything from limiting the president's ability to pardon without uh, handing information to Congress in certain cases strengthening protections for whistleblowers, bolstering enforcement of the Hatch Act, preventing foreign election interference. There's really a a huge grab bag of material here. And the Democrats kind of put it forward in fall of 2020 as a sort of, as a campaign measure, I think it's fair to say, to, you know, be able to put this on the table and say, when you vote for Democrats, you, you should vote for Democrats to reject Trump, to kind of rebuild post-Trump. 
Now, POTA is not exhaustive. As I said, there are other proposals on the table as well. And we can also talk about how a lot of the material that is in POTA was previously introduced in Congress in in other forms, including sometimes by Republicans. But that is really the kind of flagship piece of legislation. It's gotten the most attention from Congress, from advocacy groups. It's the piece of legislation that the White House has weighed in on directly with some pretty lukewarm language, and and we can talk about that. So I think that that's kind of the thing that we focus on in our piece, although, as I say, it's definitely not the be-all and end-all of reform. You know, it's not just the Trump presidency um, that that has uh, generated calls for executive branch reform, and that's a, you know yet another reason why a lot of people thought that this might be a time ripe for it, because calls to reform various aspects of presidential power had been building up. You know, I mean, in some cases over uh, over a couple of decades. Um, you know, we mentioned a couple in the piece, but there are certainly you know many examples of this. But your concern about the extremely open ended nature of the post nine eleven force authorization statute and the way it had been used quite creatively by you know, the Bush and then Obama and then Trump administrations to, you know, to wage war on terrorists uh, in various parts of the world. You know, just, just as one example, a lot of there have been a lot of concerns across a variety of dimensions of presidential power that predated the Trump years. And I think part of the thought underlying our piece and underlying some of the hopefulness that you heard from various interest groups and people you know, on the Hill about that, uh, you know, that something might finally pass was just because it felt like the, you know, you know the, there'd been pressure building up for, to do something over time. And then maybe the kind of, uh, you know, scandalousness of the Trump years would finally present an opportunity. So I want to ask you both, and I don't want to assume you have the same opinion about this, but what were you realistically expecting? I mean, Jack and Bob wrote this big, big book with an ambitious set of reforms, although many of them quite measured. A number of other groups published uh, reform proposals that were uh, more ambitious and arguably less realistic legislatively. What were you actually expecting was likely to happen and not happen? Andrew first and then Quinta. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, try to th- think back and and uh, not you know not just have the benefit of hindsight. But I, I guess a couple things. I guess I thought that, especially because of Quintus said that you know Biden seemed unusually among presidential candidates interested in reform because he came from the Hill and and, and for such a long time uh, in the Senate. You know, I think I expected that he might see things not solely from a White House perspective, but also see the need for some balance between Congress and the White House. I guess the first thing I thought is that internally, not in terms of legislation, but in terms of sort of executive branch self-reform, that we would see more than we have. And and in particular, I thought because the Justice Department had been such a locus of of problems, uh, I thought we would see more there. In terms of legislation, I mean, you know, it's, you know, we can outdo each other with our, our skepticism about Congress getting big things done. And, you know, certainly I had a lot of skepticism about that. But I guess I thought that there were some things that had longstanding bipartisan support that would have gotten through by now. You know, just to take one example, um, in the George W. Bush administration in the second term, when there was all of the, you know, concern about the politicized firing um, of U.S. attorneys, you know, apparently because they were not prosecuting, uh, you know, alleged voter fraud by Democrats actively enough. 
you know, there was bipartisan activity in the Judiciary Committee, you know, produced a bill that, you know, again, had strong bipartisan support, including from some very conservative Republicans like, you know, John Cornyn, to, you know, basically provide some uh, monitoring, uh, both internal to the executive branch and also to the congressional committees of uh, potentially inappropriate communications between the White House uh, and the Justice Department. And that showed up again in POTA. Um, and it was things like that that I thought, you know, that kind of had longstanding, you know, bipartisan support that might actually get through. And so in some ways, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't skeptical enough about Congress's ability to legislate. Quinta? Well, I think as you both know, I'm pretty pessimistic by nature. So I don't I don't think my expectations were were that high. And I will also say that, you know, one of the things that I think I personally learned uh, from the Trump era is that it's generally a good idea never to try to predict the future. So I don't think I had a firm, you know, diagnosis of what I thought would happen or what would or wouldn't happen. I do think again, kind of trying to put myself in the the headspace of where where I was at the beginning of the Biden administration or in the last months of the Trump administration, I wouldn't have expected that, you know, the full package of reforms would have come through sort of for the reasons that that Andrew identifies, you know, it's it's getting something big through Congress is always like hurting cats. There are sort of difficult partisan dynamics at play, and we can talk more about those. I think for me, it was seemed pretty clear that some of the really uh, far-reaching proposals that are in POTA, so some concerning presidential pardons, for example, might run into trouble just insofar as they were so tightly linked to Trump that it would be really hard to get Republicans on board. I would have expected, frankly, that more would have happened by now. I mean, one thing that I've been kind of complaining about to anyone who who will listen, so apologize to all the Lawfare team, is that one of the major issues that the Mueller report flagged in the criminal law is that it is not clear whether the obstruction statutes apply to the president, at least if you listen to the Office of Legal Counsel's opinions on the matter, uh, because the the obstruction statutes don't clearly state that they apply to the president. That's a really easy fix for Congress to make. And it seems like kind of a no-brainer. Um, so that's something that I, I sort of look at and I say, you know, why is this in POTA? Why hasn't anyone done this yet? This should be so easy. It's, you know, adding a couple words. It doesn't need to be particularly, you know, made particularly partisan. And yet there's been no movement. I should also say, you know, I think it is easy to forget what we thought the political landscape might look like in, say, August of 2020, you know, looking forward, what our predictions might have been, because the predictions at the time for the 2020 election were along the lines of, and I'm oversimplifying slightly here, that either Trump would win and we wouldn't know what Congress would look like, but if Biden won, that we could probably expect a significant Democratic majority in both houses. And keeping that in mind, you know, if you imagine uh, not only a strong Democratic hold on the House, but also on the Senate, that just makes a world of difference. I mean, not, not only for reform legislation, but for every single part of Biden's agenda. And so the fact that the that Congress is navigating extremely tight margins here, I think not only shapes what reforms they're willing to go out on a limb for, but it it means that, you know, 
the room for error elsewhere is constrained as well. If you really need to get everybody in line to pass, you know, President Biden's uh, social policy bill or the um, infrastructure bill or the NDAA, you just don't have the kind of money to burn, essentially, that you might need to get through some reforms that might be unpopular. And so I think that, you know, we're we're really operating in a world that is maybe the hardest dynamic for the Biden administration to to push something through, if it even wanted to push something through. Yeah. And the incentive for any administration to push through limitations on its own authority is, to say the least, minimal. So I want to contrast the current legislative record with the legislative record that Andrew referred to uh, from the mid-1970s, because I think the contrast is pretty dramatic. So Quinta, walk us through, if you will, what has and hasn't happened in the year plus since uh, Donald Trump left office in this department. And then Andrew, walk us through what uh, happened in the period immediately following Richard Nixon's departure from office legislatively. So focusing on legislation, the answer is not much, but a little bit. Um, so the when we were trying to, to keep track of where things were, the main thing that has gone through Congress is actually a set of POTA reforms um, that are referred to in the bill as reasserting Congress's power of the purse, which uh, limit the ability of presidents to decline to spend appropriated money or divert it to other purposes. Uh, so those reforms were actually inserted into the major appropriations bill for fiscal year 2022, which Biden signed on, on March 15th. So you might say, well, great, that's a win. Uh, unfortunately, those reforms are only going to last for one year. So it's a reform, but it has a pretty sharp time limit on it. When it comes to other things, the, so the House passed POTA, in late 2021. And then the question is, okay, so what's going to happen in the Senate? And I think it was always clear that the plan was to kind of break up the bill in the Senate and see what could make it through, you know, see which pieces could could get uh, support. Some things are pretty clearly dead in the water. Like I mentioned, the the pardon power reforms, I haven't seen any movement on those in the Senate. But there are other proposals, though, that are in POTA or other post-Trump reforms that, that uh, were passed by the House that are moving forward in the Senate. So POTA contains various proposals protecting inspector generals, uh, many of whom Trump fired after they started looking into his administration. And as of November 2021, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee advanced bipartisan legislation legislation that would have implemented uh, other protections for inspectors general, though it didn't go quite as far as POTA. And after that happened, uh, the committee chairman, uh, Gary Peters, and ranking member Rob Portman introduced it as an amendment to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, for fiscal year 2022. What happened then, I think, is, is representative of a couple other reforms where it may have been able to get a vote on the Senate floor and actually become law. What happened, unfortunately, is that there wasn't a vote on the Senate floor for the NDA because of a extremely complicated and tangled circumstance that has to do with uh, Marco Rubio wanting to force a vote on certain provisions having to do with uh, Xinjiang, the province in China. And so a bunch of these amendments that had post-Trump reforms in them that could have gotten a vote 
never actually got one. And so the result is that there's now on a couple of these questions sort of legislation that is kind of floating around in the Senate, uh, maybe ready to be tucked into bigger omnibus legislation and become law, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. And Andrew, walk us through how this compares to the legislative activity in the wake of Nixon's departure from office. So I guess the first thing I should say, Ben, is just that to be fair to to uh, the current Congress, n- nothing uh, you know happened you know instantly uh, in the 1970s, and so perhaps we should relax our um, our, our concern or our skepticism of, uh, uh, you know, about today a little bit, just you know by reference to the 70s. We see it sometimes took you know three or four years. Okay, so wait, let 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 me pause on that because I think that point maybe a very important one. We are comparing realistically what happened in one year and a bit post-Trump to what happened in sort of five years, six years post-Nixon. Is that right? Yeah. And I guess I should say that, you know, some of it was not even um, post-Nixon, because the you know, reform of the executive branch was so widespread across so many issue areas in the in the 1970s that you know for example um, you know reform in the war powers and covert operations areas which you know was extremely important uh, part of, of Congress's agenda then you know started while Nixon was in office you know Nixon actually uh, you know vetoed the war powers resolution and then you know Congress repassed it over over his veto. So, you know, some things were happening even before he left, uh, you know, simply because Congress, you know, the problems in the war in Indochina had already, you know, shown themselves. Congress was already exercised about that even, you know, before Nixon left. But some things waited until after he left, um, in part because, you know, the problems really came to light, you know, as a result of Watergate and the investigations of those, um, or as the result of both sort of revelations uh, you know, by the FBI about what had happened and, uh, and press reporting about what had happened during the Hoover years. You know, Hoover died in 1972, and it wasn't immediately that you know, all the information came spilling out about everything bad that had happened there. So there was sort of this, you know, staggered periods of reform. But yeah, it was over a you know, five, six-year period or so that most of it, most of it passed. So we, you know, we should be aware that you know, we are a little bit comparing apples and oranges in terms of the in terms of the time frame here. That said, let's compare apples and oranges, because yeah. I think unfair though it may be, the comparison is pretty dramatic. It's it's enormously uh, different record um, in the 1970s. So, you know, this is going to sound like, a, you know, a bit of a grab bag, but really that's, you know, that's sort of what it was. I mean, there was, um, uh, you know, the Nixon administration and previous administrations had uh, sort of used politicized, you know, fishing expeditions into people's tax returns to go after political opponents. You know, there was a strict law passed about that. There, you know, there was a really serious campaign finance abuses during the, the Nixon years. And so the uh, campaign finance regulations were strengthened enormously. Uh, the Freedom of Information Act, which had been uh, passed earlier in, the, in 1966, but got substantially strengthened in part because of the concerns about the misuse of Americans' information by the FBI and other agencies. You know, the independent counsel mechanism was set up to investigate 
high level wrongdoing in the White House or, you know, the other upper reaches of the executive branch in response to, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre, you know, during the, you know, during the sort of beginning of the end of the, of Nixon's time in office. The, those watchdogs that Quinta referred to, the inspectors general who report both to Congress and to agency heads about waste and fraud and abuse and illegality within executive branch agencies, those were created in the 1970s. You know, I, I mean, I really, I, I could go on for another <laughs> couple minutes here, and I and I won't. But just you know, the scope of of statutory reform in the '70s was dramatic, and I, I don't think it's at all an exaggeration to say that you know, kind of the legal structure that has you know served in general very well to keep the executive branch substantially more compliant with the law and substantially better at you know, shielding uh, people in the United States from abuses by their government, you know, that was uh, largely a creation of the 1970s. I do think that one thing that is useful when we're comparing apples and oranges, which to, to be clear, to a certain extent we are, is that the dynamics of Congress look really different from then to today in a number of ways. But the one I want to focus on is that, you know, in the in the 1970s, you see a solid democratic lock on both houses of Congress for, I mean, decades. They're sort of in the middle of that period. Right now, the reason why Andrew and I were sort of taking the current moment to step back and look at where reforms are headed is that we're now in a period where Congress sort of flops back and forth between the parties. And history has shown us that the president's party usually does quite badly in the midterm elections. So the Democrats have control of of both uh, houses of Congress now, albeit on an extremely narrow majority in the Senate. But with the upcoming midterms, I think it is probably more likely than not that Republicans will likely take control of the House and perhaps the Senate as well. And so the, the window for reform that we see now will have closed. So uh, another you know, sense in which there's apples and oranges is just that there's not as much time today as there was then, that the, the clock is, is ticking a lot faster, as it were. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, so I want to explore with you guys possible explanations for this disparity with the assumption that some portion of the disparity maintains itself over the next few years. One one possibility is that it simply reflects a polarized dysfunctional Congress. 
Another possibility is that it reflects a very savvy Congress, which has figured out that the only things that it can do that actually would pass constitutional muster aren't actually very dramatic or effective. In contrast to, you know, a bunch of stuff from the 70s, which actually got struck down, like big parts of the campaign finance laws. A third possibility is that it actually is a reflection of the point that Andrew made that we're comparing apples and oranges and stuff hasn't happened yet, but is still very likely to happen over the next few years. And a fourth possibility is that the executive doesn't want it to happen. Even Joe Biden, whatever he may have said when he was a candidate, and that Republicans don't really want it to happen because they're going to, they expect to have the presidency again one day. And so just as we all assume that, you know, gosh, uh, these are things that behind the veil of ignorance, both parties wouldn't want the presidency to do, we're actually getting that exactly backwards and behind the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, both parties are rubbing their hands with glee at the thought of being able to do these things and, you know, behind every senator is a would-be president. So I'm I'm interested in in both of your thoughts on what the best explanation is or what portion of the explanation falls in these various categories or in some other category that I haven't thought of. Quinta, go first. I think one major factor here, and I'll be interested to hear Andrew's thoughts, which is something that we touched on only briefly in the piece, but which I do think is important, is just that if you, as, as you kind of said, but if you look at the ambition, um, I guess you could say, of the reforms that were on the table and that were passed into law or proposed uh, post-Watergate and the relative ambition today, I mean, it's really striking. Um, I mean, Jimmy Carter wanted to create an attorney general who couldn't be fired by the president. Now, he didn't actually do that uh, because I believe OLC said that that would be unconstitutional. But that's blue sky thinking uh, compared to what we have Today, where you know currently there's a fight, for example, over whether or not inspector generals can be protected from the president's removal, or whether that would be unconstitutional to limit removal to a good cause only. And Andrew uh, has a section about that in the piece. So, so one way to read it is that simply mainstream understandings of the scope of Article II power, especially within OLC and the executive branch, have substantially expanded since Watergate, such that things that seemed possible in, under Watergate or you know, maybe a little out there but within the realm of possibility are now just completely unthinkable. And so you see Congress sort of taking smaller steps Now, I think there's a decent argument that if you're going to pass a reform, you should try to pass a reform that will actually hold up um, in the courts and particularly uh, will hold up before the current uh, conservative Supreme Court, which has a robust view of Article II power, um, rather than sort of going out on a limb and passing something that might get struck down and then you're you know, right back where you started. But I do think that that's an important part of the dynamic here. Another thing that I do think is important, I mean, and, and that you touched on, Ben, is just the... 
the complexity of the interbranch dynamics here. I mean, we think of separation of powers and institutional incentives on the part of both branches, and we certainly see that in how the Biden White House and the Justice Department is is sort of protecting its own prerogatives here in not supporting some proposals that it feels uh, encroach too much on executive power. But we're what we're not seeing is a kind of equal and opposite push from a Congress that is concerned with establishing its own institutional power, irrespective of the political party who happens to be in control of Congress or the White House. Instead, you see a Democratic majority that is really aligning itself with a Democratic president, both in the sense of, you know, it's not pursuing legislation that the White House is kind of lukewarm on. They're, they're sort of marching in, in lockstep as, as much as they can. But also, you know, there's been reporting that there's concern uh, within Congress that, for example, if Congress passed legislation that made it easier to enforce congressional subpoenas by civil suit, that that could be used by a Republican House against the Biden administration. And so I don't know wh- whether the dynamic is quite, you know, every senator looks in the mirror and, and sees a future president or more uh, uh result of the sort of dynamics of political party loyalty taking priority over institutional loyalty, but that does strike me as a major factor. Andrew, what do you think? So, you know, I agree with what Quinta said, and I I think there's probably additional stuff going on too. There's, you know, in some ways our piece is just, and this, and this, and this, and this, you know, just a series of lists of all the, all the problems and all the things that are, that are causing hold, hold holdups here. So among some things that we wrote about, but that, you know, Quinta didn't hit yet. There does seem to be this dynamic where anything that appears, any legislation, you know, that's proposed that appears to be sort of directly responsive to abuses that are specific to Trump. From what we could tell, that's, you know, essentially kind of DOA uh, with, you know, on the Republican side of, of Congress, just not, not interested in, in doing that. And to be clear, do you think that's because Republicans would regard that as passage of such legislation as some kind of admission that they that they tolerated stuff from Trump that they shouldn't, or because they actually don't mind that Trump behaved that way and want him to behave that way in the future? I mean, if... If I can break in, I, I do think that some of it is honestly just that it's become a loyalty test and there's anxiety that, you know, if you vote in favor of something that could be construed as anti-Trump, congratulations, you've just given yourself a primary challenger. I don't I don't know to what extent, you know, any given senator has deeply held views about the proper scope of presidential power and, and you know, the fact whether Trump uh, properly exercised that power. But it just strikes me that, you know, Trump's kind of reign of terror over the Republican Party is such that people might not want to step out of line. Does that sound right to you, Andrew? Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, and in some ways, you know, some of these maybe are not. I mean, I guess if we get Trump again, it would have been good. It would have been good to have enacted them. But if we don't, some of these reforms that you know that we are putting in this box here, you know, are maybe not the most important ones, just because you know most people are not as uh, flagrantly abusive of the office as as Trump. So you know, we're talking about things like um, you know Congress passing a statute that says uh, you can't pardon yourself, and if you pardon uh, a close family member or a close political aide. You know, those documents are going to be turned over to 
the Judiciary Committees, for example. This isn't, isn't perceived to be a prospective issue with Nikki Haley. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, even Nixon didn't, you know, didn't try to pardon himself. But, you know, from what we can tell, Biden would be happy, you know, happy enough to sign a lot of this kind of Trump specific stuff. And, you know, what we concluded was that's probably because he doesn't see it as, as you know, stopping him from doing anything that he would plausibly want to do. So, you know, that's, you know, that's, a, you know, that, that, that political dynamic is, is certainly another reason, you know, that just there's there, the overlap of, of stuff that's the stuff that Biden would happily sign is in some ways kind of the less useful, again, unless we get Trump second term, but also just the stuff that, you know, the Republicans are, you know, seem to have absolutely no interest in going for. I want to ask you whether you think the logjam has any prospect of breaking. So, you know, one possibility is that, hey, Biden has had other priorities for the last year, you know, the Build Back Better bill and the voting rights stuff. And so this is kind of 10th on his priority list, reigning in his own power, uh, not being the highest thing on anybody's priority list. But as you get closer to the possibility of uh, first of all, if you had a Republican House, and so there were actually incentive on the part of the House to rein in the current president's power, that could really force a negotiation. But secondly, as you get closer to the possibility of a, of Trump coming back, uh, that you know concentrates the mind like a hanging in Congress. And so I'm curious uh, from both of you, what you think the prospects are as you get closer to the midterms and then get closer to the 2024 presidential election, does that change the legislative landscape in a fashion that is more or less conducive to reform or or does it make no difference at all? I guess I think it probably depends a lot, Ben, on the area that we're talking about. I mean, I guess I could imagine a scenario, for example, there's um, you know a pretty moderate Inspector General protection bill, you know that wouldn't try to limit the president's ability to remove Inspector Generals from office. Uh, you know, so it's something that Grassley, uh, for example, has been very interested in. You know, you can imagine a situation. You know, Republicans take, you know, both houses of Congress. Um, you know, Biden's therefore not getting any of you know big items on on his agenda through you know is he willing to sign some kind of compromise pretty watered down you know inspector general protection bill that you know that Grassley and some other leading republicans really like yeah you know i could i could see that happening it may you know maybe there's a little bit of something along those lines on um, national emergencies powers reform too perhaps but I, you know, I, but I, I would think in East case it's probably you know an issue specific area, and so I would want to talk about um, you know are there leading Republican Senate, you know senators or people in the, in the House who are who are pushing it? Is there a version of the bill that um, you know that OLC and the White House Counsel's Office wouldn't object to that doesn't seem to be unduly constraining on you know on the executive branch, et cetera? Quinta. Yeah, I think that the the proposals that Andrew points to specifically on Inspector General reform and emergency powers reform, and there's there's also a, one of the other provisions that was meant to get a, a vote on the Senate floor with a 2022 NDAA and didn't was reform of the 2002 uh, AUMF 
Um, so not not the 2001 AOMF, but the 2002 authorization for the use of military force in Iraq, which the House has has repealed as well. So those three pieces of legislation are just kind of hanging out in the Senate, like I said. And my understanding is that they can kind of be tucked into any bill at any point. There just hasn't really been a moment where it makes sense to do so. So I could definitely see it, you know, see a world where one or some or all of those uh, make it through the Senate with even relatively little fanfare, just because they're kind of ready to go. On the other hand, you know, with the war in Ukraine, it's also possible that there could be a lot less enthusiasm about you know, dialing back presidential authority to use force and and use emergency powers. So I think that's worth keeping in mind. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we haven't talked about the January 6th committee because we're we're really focusing here on the legislation that is already on the table. But as I have written about with Molly Reynolds, I think partly as a a result of uh, the recent Supreme Court decision in Trump v. Mazars, the January 6th committee has really been pushing this idea of legislative purpose, that it is conducting this investigation in order to put forward, among other things, recommendations for changes in legislation. Uh, They've hinted at a number of possibilities, including changes to uh, obstruction of justice statutes, not the one that I have in mind, but if anyone's listening to this in the committee, they should put that in there, Um, and some other things as well. So, you know, the committee, I think, is is probably going to wrap up its work or it has to wrap up its work before January 2023. If they come out with a report and they say, you know, here are our three, four, five proposals for legislative change in the wake of January 6th, those are necessarily going to be, uh, you know, speak to Trump's uh, actions as well. And so at that point, you have not only kind of new life into the breathed into the idea of reform, but specific reforms on the table, reforms that are not linked to POTA. Um, So maybe it won't be dragging them down. On the other hand, anything that comes out of the January 6th committee is instantly going to be poison to the vast majority of the Republican caucus. So I don't know what that means. Um, I mean, maybe, as you say, Ben, you know, if if uh, the Biden administration is really staring down the barrel of Republicans in the in the House or potential uh, Trump victory in 2024, maybe they'll start pushing more for reform. But I think what you kind of see in in um, the back and forth of my answer here is that you can look at all these dynamics and you can say, well, maybe it comes out in the direction that helps push forward reform, or maybe it holds people back. Um, there's sort of there's so many factors and the strategic calculations are so complicated that I think it's hard to see how anything pans out. Right. I mean, one of the, to just to put flesh on the bones uh, of what you're describing, any reform you pass this year to empower Congress against a future Trump may be used next year by Jim Jordan against you, right? Yeah, and and uh, Republicans, including Jordan, have specifically said as much. So it is it is not hypothetical at all. It is very much on the table. All right. So I want to talk about the White House's strategic choices here because I think there is a an evident strategic choice in in the White House about a lot of these reforms, which is hey, there's nothing wrong with the system. There's just something wrong with the people. And so if the president is is Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump, 
the problem goes away. And if the attorney general is uh, Merrick Garland instead of uh, Bill Barr, the problem goes away. And if you know you don't have family members of the president in the White House, the problem running a, a, a hotel chain, the the problem goes away. And so I guess my question, Andrew, is, is it clear to you that that is actually the fundamental judgment of the Biden administration, that the, the problem is personnel, not policy? So that's, yeah, that's where our piece came out in, in I think with a at least on my part, Quinta, but you can tell me with sort of a note of sadness that, you know, for for all the big talk during the campaign and for all the reasons that, you know, that, you know, Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer's book and, you know, in our piece and, you know, other things that have been written at Lawfare and elsewhere, for all the good reasons to think that that we really should have been tackling some, some reform of the executive branch, it kind of does seem like Biden's view is, yeah, just swap out, you know, bad Trump people for, you know, for good-hearted people who have the right, uh, you know, the right values, the right, uh, will follow the traditional, you know, institutional norms, will follow the law. It does feel like that, that that is the Biden theory of, of presidential reform. All right. One more question, Quinta. One thing that people will say is that hey, the problem here is Merrick Garland. And, you know, you have all these good ideas floating around Congress, and then they run into the buzzsaw, which is the Office of Legal Counsel, which basically says they're all unconstitutional or some soft version of that, and that the Justice Department is just very institutionally conservative because it is actually, among other things, the guardian of uh, presidential power. And I guess the question is, do you see a plausible scenario in which the Justice Department realistically plays a different role? Under a different attorney general, maybe. Um, I mean, I, I do think Garland has got a lot of criticism, I think, uh, as as the three of us have written, some of it fair and and some of it unfair. But it does seem to me, and Ben, you can tell me if you think I'm I'm being unfair here that Garland has taken a very institutionalist position as the attorney general, which to be clear, I think is uh, exactly what he was hired to do. <laughs> nobody nobody expected that he was going to come in and be a real firebrand. I think there, there are kind of a couple different ways to think about being the attorney general in a, a post-Trump period or a period of uh, following e- extreme crisis um, in the rule of law. One of them is to say, okay, what we really need to do is sort of shore up our traditions, our norms of integrity, you know, return to business as usual, and that's how we're going to restore trust in the department. Another way is to say what we need to do is, you know, get rid of all of the dross that's been holding us down. Um, sort of, you know, look look back and figure out which OLC opinions do we need to rescind? How can we think differently about presidential power? And Garland has pretty clearly taken the first tack. I think both both approaches are defensible. Um, and there there are arguments in favor of both. And I, I take the the difficulty of that choice seriously, but it does seem clear to me that he's he's really chosen the first approach. And I think there are serious downsides to that. I mean, for for exactly the the reason that Andrew identifies, it's just it's incredibly difficult to protect an executive branch that is 
built in such a way as to allow a president like Trump to do what he did. And for the answer of, well, how do we prevent this from happening again, essentially to be, well, don't elect that guy. I mean, at the end of the day, that is the answer, right? There is a limited amount that the government can do to prevent a president whom the American people under the existing system, the Electoral College, chose to elect as their leader. But it does feel mismatched, I guess I would say, to the to the magnitude of the threat that Trump posed to the rule of law. I guess I would just say, if Merrick Garland were here, I think what he would say in response to that is that the powers of the presidency are so titanic that the ties that bind the hands of the law-abiding president are trivial to a Trump but are serious to the law-abiding president. And so what you end up, you end up with a, a paradox where you, you do these things that, that restrict the law-abiding and don't actually affect the lawless president. Right. I mean, the problem, of course, is that that depends on, you know, the American people electing law-abiding presidents going forward. And and I do think that, honestly, one of the things that I was thinking of as we were writing this piece is, you know, if we're in a situation where we understand the powers of the presidency to be that vast, at what point is the problem actually also how we conceptualize the powers of the presidency? We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Andrew Kent, thank you both for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. If you heard an ad or two in this podcast, that's because you haven't signed up for the Material Supporters Program, wherein you become a material supporter of Lawfare and you skip the ads. You can do that at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.